I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Hey, y'all. It's my fucking birthday month, and guess what we're doing today? We're jumping in. I'm ready to go fucking go. We've got a limited time to record. I am so stoked. It's fucking Carpenter Month, bitches. It's your party. You can cry if you want to. Let's cry go, babes. Cry if you want to. Cry if you want to. Oh, it's really you unfortunate to dance to. on an audio medium. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it is fortunate. I am a very good dancer, but not when I'm just sitting down in a squeaky chair trying to dance to your song. <laughs> your amped up club remix of Drake. <laughs> Ooh, that song is good. Um ratchet happy birthday it's one of my mm. favorite birthday songs mm. Mm. um but yeah uh it's tover's birthday month Cho. february he's turning 31 fuck off <laughs> oh my god it's okay i'm only a year behind him but anyway um we're super excited to be covering john carpenter this month the um, greatest director of all time <laughs> yeah if you spoilers if, <laughs> Right, yeah, we all we all know if you've ever listened to any episode of this, I think everyone knows how we feel about John Carpenter. But uh, if you guys remember, we did uh, Bong Joon Ho month um, in early 2020, April. Um, like April, yeah, yeah. So I guess mid 2020, whatever. Um, it's still early, yeah. First quarter, yeah. Um, Third, and something like that. I don't remember if we did it because that's my birthday month, or if it was just serendipitous that it was my birthday month. It was it was serendipitous. We just said like, oh, it was because um, it was because they were releasing a bunch of his films on Hulu. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, they were finally dropping Parasite onto uh, uh, streaming platforms, yeah. and so we got so stoked that we were just like, we're gonna go find every film he's ever made and watch all of them. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a uh, very good time in quarantine there. Um, so yeah, we're gonna be doing John Carpenter Month in honor of Topher's birthday month, and I'm almost in tears. I'm so excited. I know. Hey babe. Yeah, babe. Hey, babe. <laughs> yeah, babe. Remember that time we watched The Thing? Which fucking time I watch it so often. <laughs> yeah, I. this is one of the first things that I think I learned about Topher was, um, number one was that he watches a horror film every single night in October. That was, you know, just a, a tradition that he does. And the second adjacent um, fact that I learned about Topher was that he, one of his favorite things to do when it's snowing outside is curl up with a trademark drunk mocha <laughs> and and um, watch the thing. So since it is still winter, I am going to give y'all a little gift from me for my birthday. Here is the recipe. I was about to mocha. ask you. Yeah. Give us the recipe. So I have, a, I have a very specific proprietary one that I get. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't go buy it because my mother makes the uh, hot chocolate mix that I use. But you make a pot of black coffee. Preferably a light roast. Mm-hmm. Really need that caffeine to go in here. Okay. You then put in the coffee with the hot chocolate mix and about an ounce and a half of bourbon. It's delicious, guys. It's, it's so good. We had it. But find um, your own hot chocolate mix, whichever one you prefer. Mm-hmm. Use that. Or like if you want to do like a, um, what is it when they have like the Dutch chocolate things where it's like almost syrup, but it's still super delicious? Those. Like the oh, melted chocolates yeah. or whatever, something like that. You can do it with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, um, if you have one of those like milk frothers that heats up the milk, you can just pour chocolate milk in there. 
Yeah. Like I've done that too. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And it heats it up. It's it's hot chocolate mix, coffee, bourbon. And I would recommend an ounce and a half of bourbon in in a standard coffee cup. Right. Right. Just Um, eyeball the coffee. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be good coffee. You know, I usually use chock full of nuts. This is not a shout out for them. They do not sponsor this podcast, nor does anyone else. (laughs) Nor does anyone. Uh, I guess Andrew. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Um, But yeah, it's 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 very delicious. And I guess you can you can put like if you want to get fancy with it and get, you know, uh, you can put whipped cream and, and your marshmallows. You could do a whole pour-over situation. You could, you could do whatever you want with it. It's a very basic recipe that you could make as fancy as you want, or you can drink it, you know, just straight up. But yeah, I go mom's hot chocolate mix, chock full of nuts, Evan Williams. That's Perfect. my That's my blend. That is, the, that is a Topher signature drunk mocha. I love it. I love it. It is It is very delicious. I've had some good times watching the thing. I've done his tradition twice now. Um, when it has snowed outside in New York City. It's so nice. It's just such a comforting way to watch it. So I should say this is my favorite horror film of all time. Mm-hmm. My second favorite movie of all time. This is not my favorite movie of all time, which is wild because I talk about it all the time. Yeah, but you talk about your first favorite movie way more. Casablanca, yeah. You also watch it way more. You <laughs> kind of Casablanca just throw on like Casablanca. Once a week. <laughs> God. I own it. It's so easy to do. It's just like, oh, what do I want to watch? Mm, Casablanca? Of course I do. <laughs> Shout I guess... out to all my friends who had to deal with my drunk texts at 4 o'clock in the morning while I'm still awake and watching Casablanca for the second time in a night. <laughs> oh, yeah. If, if you date Topher, you get videos. You get that videos. Is accurate. That is accurate. Yep. <clears throat> I guess we should uh, introduce ourselves in case oh, we yeah. have a new listener uh, in this episode. I'm Nicole. I'm Topher. And we're the Horror Babes. And we're here to talk about horror. We're going to, you know, talk in your ear for a good hour or so. And change on this one. Yeah, we do reviews of movies and we do a very special segment called Horror or Nah, where we talk about uh, whether something is horror or or not. It's very self-explanatory and we just talk about, you know, where the genre is, where it's been, where it is and where it's going and totally yeah but this is not a horror now this is definitely a horror film by <laughs> pretty definition. hard to argue that it's not yeah yeah it'd be very it'd be just futile i would have a lot um, of questions about your mental state if you said this wasn't a horror film i'd be like then what is uh <laughs> but yeah so we'll follow our normal format here um but i think we're just gonna be a little more excited in this one i'm pumped um, calling it now best episode ever I can't wait. That's a lot to live up to, but I'm 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 right here with you. I'm on this journey. So uh, Topher's going to take us through who made this thing, shouting out the cast and the crew, and then I will take us through the plot. This is a slasher film, so it's going to be pretty quick. Slasher and, monster, yeah, yeah. And so, and then we'll we'll dive right into that uh, nice deep analysis. That's going to be the bulk of the episode, y'all. Buckle up. Mm-hmm. I got a lot to say. I'm very excited. So <laughs> Topher, who made this thing? John fucking Carpenter in like 15 roles. Yep. <laughs> That's his standard. Um, so I have been asked by friends before, uh, specifically one friend whom I love, and uh, I'm so glad that I'm getting to help take him on a horror journey right now. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Carrie Baines, our good friend. FS Chill, if you want to know him as a musician, you can find him. But he recently asked me, this is actually what inspired me doing this month for my birthday. Oh, great. He had asked me after listening to one of our episodes, when you say something is very Carpenter, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. So when I say something is very Carpenter, I'm talking about a, like a, a style, a tone, and it's not just one thing. It's more of a, a vibe. Yeah. So there are directors whom 
without getting into like the auteurship rates, mm-hmm. like I'm not talking like Tarantino. Like you know a Tarantino film because it's always the same thing, even if it's different. And yeah. I don't mean that as like a disparaging thing. He makes very good movies. Yeah. I more mean that Carpenter moves through multiple genres and styles and changes up his cinematography. He changes up his music. But there's a hand to it that means something. Mm-hmm. And part of it is just having his finger in every piece of the pie. Right? Yeah. He's uh, probably one of the most hands-on directors I've ever it, it, Which is wild. Because he, he, yeah, he, in terms of like the, the, the litany of things he does on a project... He is actually a hands-off director. Like, he's not a hardcore, like, get... Like, people don't... He's not like David O. Russell, right? Who's mm. hands-on to the point that he punched George Clooney. <laughs> Literally hands-on. <laughs> he's more of a hands-on director in that he is involved in every part of it, but he always wants to defer to someone who knows more than he does. He's probably one of the most humble directors I've, I've ever seen. Right. And I guess I just it, mean We'll talk that about he's, that with this movie. I guess I just mean is. that he's not, like, one of those directors who just shows up and says yeah i'm here to direct i'm here to direct this thing and then i'm gone absolutely like i i I don't give a shit totally yeah yeah he's not showing up and saying act like this act like that light like this there's a bug right on my screen like oh my god crawling up and it just scared the shit out of me you okay nicole's pants are now warm for the rest of the recording I'm half tempted to leave no, that in. I'm I, half tempted no, to leave that in. You're allowed to. It's just I don't ever jump. Yeah, I, I've never seen you jump like it's that. Scary. Not since creep have I seen you jump like that. I think it. I think it's just because my phone is open to like a white screen, and suddenly and, there's this just large, disgusting brown suddenly, thing on it. Yeah. Well. It, oh. Wow, I'm it's because we talked so much shit about them and mimic this last week. They're after me now, guys. <laughs> they're they're after me. They're mimicking me. <laughs> I was trying to use my phone. Oh my god, I'm sorry. I I just had like a s- tiny heart attack. It's okay. I'm fine. <sighs> oh god, cardiac arrest. Whew. Okay, okay, it's we can. The shit out of me. <laughs> I almost fell. Okay. Um. Anyway, let's. Let's continue before I just. (laughs) (laughs) Happy birthday, it's over. I'm not even. I don't. I'm not even afraid of recording in a New York apartment. I'm not even afraid of bugs like that. It just startled me. It's fair. Okay, where were we? (laughs) About how great John Carpenter was somewhere. You were saying the the hands-on thing. He doesn't show up and just like, yeah, he doesn't show up and say, fuck you, act like this, light like that. There's where the camera goes. I'm gone. Yeah. Um, No, he's involved in every portion of this from front to back. Like He's from pre-production to post-production. He's always in the editing room. And it's not because he wants to, it doesn't come across that he wants to be like a control freak. He just loves doing it all. Yeah. He's just somebody, he's like Guillermo del Toro, who we talked about in our Mimic episode. And Mm -hmm. we will probably do a director series on at some point. Mm -hmm. That he is, he came up through, like his first, uh, the only time he's ever been nominated for an Academy Award, which is wild to Mm -hmm. me, was for his first film. Or second, no, it was his second film. He wrote and directed a short story, a short film um, in 1969. And then Uh he, in 1970, was part of a team who was nominated for, uh, and I think won for best uh, best live action short film. 
Wow. And that's yeah. the only time he's ever even been nominated? As far as I can tell. I mean, horror films never really get Yeah, and if this of... hadn't come out the same year as E.T., he might have been nominated in other points. I, I have to... I, I Don't quote me on that, and I may later in this episode mm-hmm. walk that back and say I'm a fucking idiot but he's yeah. never won except for that for sure mm-hmm. which is wild at the beginning mm-hmm. he's had a 51 year long career as a filmmaker yeah and I think that's incredible um it, it, he started young of course but he just has he just likes working yeah so yeah he wrote he directed this and uh co-wrote the story with Bill Lancaster I fucking love Bill Lancaster. Um, you would probably know him best from this, but also Bad News Bears. Bad News Bears. With, uh, uh, not Walter Cronkite, Walter Matha- Walter Matthau. Okay. Um, and that's actually why, uh, we'll get into this in the production section, but that's why Carpenter wanted him on here so bad. He loved the Bad News Bears. And so he wanted him on this. They worked together again on Firestarter, uh, or would have worked together on Firestarter if, uh, uh, he, if Carpenter hadn't lost that script because of this movie. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Bill Lancaster, son of Burt Lancaster, famous, 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 famous actor, mm-hmm. um, was the writer on this. This is actually one of the first times Carpenter hadn't worked with Deborah Hill in a while. Okay. Uh, we'll get into her in later episodes uh, this month. But I, it's interesting that she wasn't a part of this project, but it also is probably because they had dated and then he married Adrian Barbeau. Okay. Uh who was also in Escape from New York and uh, a bunch of other other movies. Um, so he was married to her at this time. She's actually in this as the voice of the computer that <laughs> Kurt Russell kills <laughs> with scotch. Kurt Russell. <laughs> Speaking of Kurt Russell, we have our lead, Kurt Russell, playing McCready. He can get it. God, he's so hot in this movie. Kurt Russell has never not been hot. He can get it. Like, sit on my face, daddy, please. I am Step ready. <laughs> I am ready for pilot RJ McCready. Oh my God. I am ready. You can tread on me. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, but yeah, he's so our, he's hot. our, he's so hot. Even with that dumbass hat. Oh my God. Yeah. He has that stupid hat that looks like, it looks like, doesn't it look like the Pharrell hat? Yeah. It's, hat? it's even bigger. Yeah. It's a sombrero with the yeah. front turned up. Yeah, it looks it looks really fucking stupid. It really but, does. <laughs> but he is so hot. That hair. That beard. That that surliness. Those eyes. God, piercing <laughs> right into my soul. Oh. oh man. We had to know that this episode was going to turn into just thirsting over John Carpenter and Kurt Russell. <laughs> yeah. Cuz like to give you an idea, if you've never seen John Carpenter, he's the I would describe him as John Waters, but if he looked mean. Oh. <laughs> right? No, that's just Balding, really funny. thicker mustache. He's like the straight John, John, or not John Carpenter, John Waters. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I can see that. Uh, we have Wilford Brimley in his first major role ever hmm. as Dr. Blair. Um, he was actually cast in this role because he was an unknown, and they wanted an unknown person, just like an everyman for Dr. Blair. Yeah. Uh, who is our one of our doctors who gets who goes nuts? Mm-hmm. T.K. Carter as Nalls, the roller skating, disco listening uh, chef. He's funny. He's I love Nalls. I wish that they the studio hadn't fucked us over so much in terms of production because he had a much cooler death at the end. Damn. Instead of just disappearing. David Clinton as Palmer, the 
weeded out weirdo who works. Uh, he's the other pilot. Mm-hmm. So basically, there's two of every role here, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we we are in the South Pole. Mm-hmm. We are at a research station, the American research base in the South Pole. Yes. So there's two doctors, two pilots, two radio dudes. It's just like Parent Trap. It's exactly like Parent Trap. <laughs> two of each. <laughs> Noah's Ark or something. I don't know. <laughs> it is a real Noah's Ark meets the Parent Trap meets 12 Angry Men, uh, which is funny because it's 12 men and most of them are angry at some point or another. Very angry. There's a lot of like machismo anger in Ooh, this. We're going to get into that. That's one of my production notes that I love to talk about with this movie. Yeah. One of my favorite actors, particularly as a voice actor, but also as a live action actor, Keith David. As Keith Childs. Mm-hmm. Um, he's so good in this. Yeah, you would know Keith David from, if you play video games and you play AAA video games, you would know him from Halo, where he played the... The Beyonce song? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is mayonnaise an instrument? <laughs> uh, if you love really good animation, you would also know him as the Flame King from Adventure Time. Oh. Or Reverse Giraffe from Rick and Morty. Wow. Lots of voice acting. He's done a lot of voice acting. I mean, listen to his voice and tell me you don't want to hear that on mic every single day of your life. That's fair. I just want him to like do... I, I want him to be a constant voice in my life somehow or another. If he doesn't have a podcast, he should. Like if you were having someone narrate your life, it'd be him? Oh, for sure. But I mostly just want him to take over my role on this podcast. Oh. And so I don't can... mean like editor and producer. I mean like <laughs> an engineer. I mean <laughs> the host. <laughs> So you can listen to him while you're editing? Yes. Gotcha. It'd be much better than listening to me while I'm editing. That's true. Listening to our own voices is a weird form of torture. <laughs> it's not fun. Yeah. Um, Richard Dysart as Dr. Copper, the other doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Maloney as George Bennings. Richard Maser as Clark, the like kennel caretaker. Mm-hmm. Donald Moffat as Gary, sort of the like captain of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Joel Polis as Fuchs, and then Thomas G. Waits as Windows, the uh, other radio operator. Who played the dog? Jed. Jed? Jed. Jed is a wolf dog. That's so cute. Yeah. Uh, fun story. The he, dog's name is Jed? The, jo- the dog's name is Jed. In real life? In real life. That's I mean, so not cute. anymore. It's, it's <gasps> long Stop. dead, babe. Stop! This movie, this movie came out four, 38 years ago. Animals should live forever. Correct. <laughs> um... But yeah, he, uh, Richard Mazur and Jed, so we'll get into like why, how the actors prepared for this role. And it's one of the only versions of method that I'll ever agree with. Okay. But Richard Mazur isolated himself from the rest of the cast and only hung out with Jed so that Jed would stand near him without looking for his handler. So they became buddies. Aw. Yeah. And he used that to inform his, his performance as Clark, which I really love. That's kind of what Sissy Spacek did with Carrie. Exactly. Yeah, she, it's very similar to that. She isolated herself from all of the other actors. Yeah. Um, so that she could kind of feel that pain of isolation. And uh, I, I talk about it more in our Carrie episode. But mm-hmm. yeah, she did something something similar. And she told um, all of the other actors beforehand, like, I'm going to isolate myself from you. Right. So that I don't feel any sort of camaraderie. Exactly. Um, so a couple of the producers played the Norwegians mm-hmm. um, that we see in the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. And John Carpenter shows up as one of the Norwegians as well. Cute. Um, he regularly does cameos. We're going to be talking about he another does, film yeah. where he does this. But he does cameos as helicopter pilots because he's a he has a commercial pilot's license. Mm-hmm. And so he just puts himself in his films 
as helicopter pilots all the time. Perfect. I love it. We it's love cute, it. right? Like it's we like love it. it's like if Harrison Ford instead of crashing his helicopter a bunch mm-hmm. while on rescue missions, uh, it was just like, oh, I'm going to show up and do this. An absolute legend was the composer on this. This is one of the only times that John Carpenter was not the lead composer on yeah. one of his films. Mm-hmm. Um, he did do some of the music for this. Yeah. But the lead composer was none other than Ennio Morricone. Okay. Ennio Morricone has had 500 some credits to his name as a composer. He is one of my all-time absolute favorites. He, It's just... You can scroll through and you'll just see 4,000 movies you know and 4,000 you don't. And I know that it's not up to 500 some, but it really actually does if you think about it. Right. Um, most recently, he actually did the... Uh, there were So, fun thing is that Quentin Tarantino took unused portions of the score from The Thing mm-hmm. and used it in The Hateful Eight, which oh. also... Which is a similar premise. Yeah. And mm-hmm. stars Kurt Russell. Oh. But yeah, Ennio Morricone, I, I'm not going to go into all of his credits. I'm just going to give that fun fact because, dear God, mm-hmm. <laughs> we yeah. spend an entire like year-long podcast just talking about him. 100%, yeah. Yeah. Dean Cundy was the DP. Mm-hmm. Film editing from Todd C. Ramsey. Production design from John J. Lloyd, although he's credited as John L. Lloyd for some reason. Okay. Art direction was from Henry Lorec and set decoration by John M. Dwyer. All fantastic. Now, the most important person when we come to the uh, special effects in this movie Mm -hmm. is the young man, 21 years old, when he designed the creatures for this film. Wow. Rob Botton. We will get into him, uh, but (laughs) holy shit, the the creature effects in this. Yeah. It is amazing. Um, This movie was originally supposed to be shot for way less Mm -hmm. and there was a whole bunch of debate over the the budget they went so over budget just because of the creature effects and they didn't even include everything wow yeah it's there's a version of this movie that is just stupid cool Mm -hmm. and i'm saying that as my favorite horror film of all time this could have even been better right if anybody had believed in it Yeah, I mean, this movie was not, it was not received well oh, by anybody. Oh, I've got anybody. a whole section about that, yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, I'd certainly have my have my own opinions of why it wasn't received well. Yeah. Because um, whenever something, whenever something sur- resurfaces in, um, in pop culture or something, it means that, you know, we somehow were ready for it again, or yes. we were finally ready for it. Um, but the short end of what I think is that this movie has a very nihilistic tone. And, oh, it for sure does. And, and that's nobody why... was ready for that. You and Carpenter are in agreement on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, he absolutely agrees with you on that. <laughs> We're buds. <clears throat> right. <laughs> <laughs> We're right, pals. <laughs> I wish. I would totally hang out with him. But no, it's true. Like, it, like if you look at the con- at the context of the early 80s, um, we weren't try- we weren't looking for nihilism. I mean, this literally competed against DT. Yeah, which is which is really tough because that is such a positive look on extraterrestrials. Yeah, I mean, alien you know? human relations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, would you like I, my review of ET real quick? Since we're never going to cover it. Uh, sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't like it. I never can. Conne- I never really connected with it. Yeah, um, I always thought it should have been a horror film, uh, and then. When I was older, I found out that it was because it was a thing. Right, 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 right. 
Yeah, so I, I mean, it's, it's bullshit that this didn't do well, but we've seen it time and time again, especially with horror films. It's like as a society, if we're not ready for it or if it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's really hard to read the room when you have a really great idea. You know, yeah, you can't. Yeah, this is a brilliant idea. And well, and also yeah. when you go into production, you don't know what the world is going to look like when you get out on the other side because Absolutely. you're often filming for 12 plus weeks. Oh, yeah. And this, this again, the production on this, it took forever. Yeah. So it's they literally interesting. had to wait for winter. <laughs> yeah. So it's it, it's it's always interesting to look back and look um, at the the context of what was coming out and what people were willing to accept. Yeah. So the main production company was Terman Foster. Mm-hmm. As most people know, this is a, a technically a remake of the thing that came from outer space. Or the thing from outer space, whatever the original title was, the uh, the Howard Hawks film. I think it was. Um, so it's based off of Who Goes There, which is the, the novel, short story. Yeah, the the short story. Yeah. Um and and then it was made in 1951 to the thing from another world. Thing from another world. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Um. So that was an RKO picture. Mm-hmm. And in the 70s, Universal was. This was like an eight-year production. To get it made. Yeah. So in the 70s, Universal was just buying up a ton of RKO pictures because RKO had gone bust. Well, and they went through several directors and writers for oh this. Oh, my they God. Didn't, like at least 10 directors and writers. It wasn't It wasn't each. just like John Carpenter's baby from the inception. It was... No. It was, they went through quite a few and... Um, so, so this movie had like a thousand different ways to approach the story by the end yeah. of all of these directors and writers having their hands on it. Yeah, there's so many different ones. There's a bunch of different alternate like filmings and editings and endings and yeah. cut scenes and all of this stuff. That's um, I've seen a lot of it because, duh, I'm me. Mm-hmm. And you can find a lot of it online. Um, I have also watched the commentary of this movie, which is just John Carpenter and Kurt Russell getting lit. Yeah. <laughs> and just making jokes the whole time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I guess the last couple things on the small the small side production. It's 109 minutes, so pretty tight runtime. Uh, it's under two hours. For a film like this, that's very, very tight. Mm-hmm. Um, it was budgeted, like I said, at $15 million, and it only made 19.6 yeah. before, before like home release. And then it became a cult classic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a, I don't know a single horror fan who doesn't think this is a great film. Yeah. 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 I mean, again, I it, it's what we're what we're ready and willing to receive and accept. And I mean, it's kind of like a lot of us are a lot of people I know are watching Contagion right now. Um, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, have been for like the last year. <laughs> yeah, they they've been really into it. But I don't. I think maybe once we're officially out and on the other side of this we're not going to want to see anything like that for a while because it's i mean i keep talking about how how this is going to affect us and how like um our grandchildren are going to see us because you think about people who went through um um like food shortages and and all Mm. of that uh and they're like they have like 10 million cans of food in their pantry at all times and you're like grandma why do you have all these cans in there. It's like, well, I, I don't of my family who just have cash socked away in random places around the house. That's, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I kind of, this is definitely off topic of this movie, but, um, I, I, I kind of wonder like, are, are, are grandchildren going to be like, 
be like, why are you, Grandma, why are you sanitizing the entire house? Like, why are <laughs> you, a day. why do you carry alcohol wipes with you now? Why, yeah, like, everywhere you purse, go? Like, yeah, why, why do you, some people might still be wearing a mask when they get older. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because they're. Let's normalize that. I, I agree. I hope that people, especially if you're feeling a little under the weather, but you have to go to the doctor and get on the subway, just wear a freaking mask. Chup. Um, but no, I, I kind of wonder. I kind of wonder about that because even if, you know, we get COVID under control and everything, when you get older, you're more susceptible to catching things that could just kill you. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering if like when we get older, we'll see people just wearing a mask all the time in public because it makes them feel safer. 100%. But yeah, I, I yeah. just I, I think about that all the time, how like future generations are going to view us while we're still alive, <laughs> you know, if. Yeah. yeah, yeah, this is all under a big umbrella of if always. So, yeah, all of a sudden we're in a very nihilistic tone. Here we go. We're on theme. It's great. It's, it's great. Perfect. It's great. She sips her cold brew. Yeah. <sighs> it's fine. It's fine. So that does it for me right now. Okay. I've got so much more later, but. Yeah, why don't we? Uh, why don't you give me some plot, babe? Let's do it. So we are in Antarctica, Cha. and we see a Norwegian helicopter. Sorry, this is the second Antarctica film we've done. I'm just realizing that we did one during Bong Joon Ho month too. Yeah, and Sorry. that one that one is actually somewhat similar to this one. I, I yep. It, Wait, I think we Antarctic, mentioned that on that episode. Yeah. Yeah, Antarctic Journal. Um, it's it's very similar to this one. Um, and I was gonna say like this this plot is very very um very overdone but overdone in the way that like i'm still interested in seeing people it's fascinating um, it's about paranoia it's fascinating it's always gonna be cool exactly it's 12 angry men it's antarctic journal it's hateful eight Mm -hmm. it's uh uh reservoir dogs too was inspired by this Mm -hmm. like not to mention two tarantinos in the list but he's done two movies that are inspired by this movie and this, this type of storytelling Totally, because as humans, we are inherently interested in some sort of psychology. I don't mm-hmm. care. I don't care who you are. You're interested in it somehow. Yeah. Uh, so, a Norwegian helicopter is following a sled dog. Um, they're going to the American Research Station in, like you said, the uh, South Pole. Yep. And um, <laughs> the Norwegian passenger blows up the helicopter on accident by himself. It's weird comedy um, errors at the top. It's yeah, so funny. It's, like, it's, it's still, it's like terrifying, but it's funny. Yeah. It, it, comedy horror live in the same space. I've said that a thousand times, but like, yeah. Yeah. So we've got this like Norwegian pilot who's firing the rifle and is like shouting at the Americans. Um, but they cannot understand him because it's in, not in a language that they He's speak. speaking Norwegian, yeah. Yeah. And um, he is shot dead in self-defense by Gary, who is our station commander. With his revolver. It, yeah. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> whoa. And then we meet dreamy Kurt Russell. RJ McDreamy. McDreamy. Oh, my God. Okay. Fuck Grey's Anatomy. RJ McDreamy from now on. I'm nauseating myself. <laughs> Um, so he's our, he's our, uh, pilot, uh, RJ McCready and we meet Dr. Copper because they go to investigate the Norwegian base. Yep. Um, and it's bleak there. <laughs> the ruins are charred. Um, there are frozen corpses and, um, they find the remains of something that doesn't look human. Sort of human? Humanoid. Yeah. Um, and very, 
um, dis- disfigured. It's like speared it's, to the wall. Yeah. yeah. And um, charred. And yeah, it's gross. It's pretty gross. Awesome. It's not what you want to see, but in this movie it is. Um, <laughs> so they're like, hmm, okay, uh, let's go back to the American station. Um, and where we meet the biologist Blair, who performs autopsies on said remains, which... First of all, why would you? I guess I get it, curiosity. But you of gotta course find out. This is, You're scientists, but right? of course this is the start of a horror film. Like, yeah. don't bring don't the creepy. They find the they find Ugh. the damn spaceship in the ice that the Norwegians had uncovered. It's just crazy. Yeah, because that's the opening it's of the film. Is the crazy. is the spaceship crash lands on Earth, and then we're ten thousand years later. Yeah. So. Um, what the autopsy uncovers is that it's a normal set of human organs. So it's it's. Again, like I said, like a humanoid, like it's mm-hmm. it's human esque. Um, so, so uh, Clark puts um, our sled dog. Does this? Does the dog in the movie have like a name? No. no. Okay. Okay. It's it's, just, it's a, you know it's it's a work dog, right? Yeah. Like they're not really naming them. It's, Clark probably has names for them. Probably but. yeah, but it's um Jed in real life. Our mm-hmm. actor's name is Jed, and <laughs> and it's um does some freaky shit um it, <laughs> this is such a good scene uh yeah it it uh metamorphoses and absorbs all the station dogs oh they did some really cool shit with the scene too so it was done by a single puppeteer mm-hmm. um, whose name i can't remember off the top of my head i i'm sure i'll remember it later he um so he this was done on a, like a raised stage yeah and he was underneath and pulling the tentacles back in and then they f- reversed the film Oh, that's the, cool. Yeah. I mean, it's awesome. a pretty classic trick, right? Oh, yeah. But, but it's really cool. Like, it was all hand-operated. This, this movie, was all puppetry. The, yeah. And this movie becomes 10 times cooler when you realize that. That yeah. it's not CGI. It's, well, it's not... Why it holds up. It's like why yeah. the original Star Wars hold up in terms of their... Uh, at least not the... the Before the digital releases, if you can get your hands on the uncut ones. Yeah. The originals. Uh, they look amazing. Because mm-hmm. it's all done with models and puppets. And, like, everything's shot in camera. And so, like, it feels real because it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is what makes this movie extremely special. Yeah. Um, doesn't age because it looks good. Yeah. <laughs> they spent time well, and, and millions of dollars on it. Exactly. And and knowing little facts like that about the reversing of the footage and, mm-hmm. and all, of, all of those tricks that we've seen before is still cool, you yeah. know? Um, so... So we get, we get our, our very scary... A very scary big dog. and <laughs> Dog puddle, really. Yeah. <laughs> it's a puddle of dog bits. Yeah, true. And um, Childs uses like a flamethrower, which is sick. It's such a cool shot. Because <laughs> the camera's focused right at it, so the flame comes at you. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just going to keep interjecting with cool things. Please, no, please do. This is, this is your month. I'm very excited and drinking so movie. much cold brew. Yeah. <laughs> no, honestly, this is, your, this is your time to shine. Um, so... Uh, the creature uh, goes up in flames, and Blair autopsies this creature, and is this is when we realize, just like in our episode mimic, <laughs> that uh, this creature can imitate other organisms. So <laughs> scary. Um, yeah. It, well, he yeah. So this is where Blair does the whole cool thing of like, actually, the guy who designed the. So, uh, the program that's in the beginning of Escape from New York mm-hmm. designed the program here that Blair uses to mm. determine how long it would take for a 
this this type of creature, the thing, to assimilate all human life. And it's about three years. Wow. Yeah. Scary. That's not a lot of time. <laughs> um, so they they recover some Norwegian data, data, data. Yeah. And um, this information leads them to do an excavation or, or leads them to the site of excavation. Yeah. Um, which, oh, sorry. This is when they find this big. This is, yeah, sorry, this yeah, is when they find... they didn't find it earlier. They find it now. Well, you still knew that they found it. <laughs> they find it eventually. <laughs> um, this is when they find it, though. The alien spacecraft, and they find, like, a, a dig site. So then we've got uh, Norris, who says that the ship has probably been buried for at least 100,000 years. I like, also screwed that up least. by an order of magnitude. I'm very sorry. I'm a hack and a fraud. Are you sure this is your favorite movie? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Um, you said it was your second favorite. It's fine. Yeah. Um, Blair and everyone is uh, paranoid that the creature, like you said, would yeah. assimilate all life on Earth in a matter of years, which I think that's a fair thing to be paranoid about. It's terrifying. Bro. Um, so they're like, okay, well, we need to do something about this. Okay, so then we've got Bennings, who is isolated, um, but this creature starts assimilating Mm -hmm. Bennings. Um, But Windows, got these names. These names always just like trip me up. Bennings, Windows. So most of them are normal names, but Windows was named that because uh, Thomas Waits, not to be confused with the singer and occasional actor, Tom Waits. Right. Last name is spelled differently. Ah. Uh, There's an E in Thomas Waits. Mm -hmm. Um. But it was while they were doing costuming yeah, for the film. And Thomas Waits puts on these oversized sunglasses that we see him in a lot. And they all started joking and calling him Windows. And that's why his name became that in the script. I'm down with that. That's great, right? It's like like Radar from MASH, right? Like that's kind of the character he is, right? Mm -hmm. He's Radar Mm O'Reilly. I like that. So Windows interrupts this and McCready decides to burn Bennings or the yeah. Bennings thing, I guess we'll call it. Yeah, because well, every time you see a, the combination, it's always called name dash thing. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's funny because that's what you say when you don't know what something is. Yeah. Like the 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 cup thing. When you mean like cup holder. You know what I mean? Well, it's funny. It's um so you know in bartending the little uh metal cups we use to measure things yep they're called jiggers mm-hmm. it's that was a name that was a word that meant whatchamacallit it's a what it's a what's a thing mm-hmm. so that's literally why they're called that that's no there's no reason for that term other than like someone just like looked at it and it's like i don't know a whatchamacallit or the thingamajigger and that was what it was look at this guys wow <laughs> we are such a rich podcast you get so much information in one hour i had no idea mm-hmm. i did not know that yeah <laughs> that like it's like a thing I'm a jig. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now now it makes sense, but I guess you know when people just tell you that something's called something you don't question it, you're just like, okay. Yeah, it's just like, right. oh, it's a technical term, sure. Especially not being a bartender <laughs> myself, I'm just like, sure, that's what that's called. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Chill. Um so so we burn up Benning's thing and Poor Windows is so freaked out this whole time. Dude's just not okay. I wouldn't be either. Fair. I I I would not be um, okay in this situation. <laughs> so Blair, um, Blair is also paranoid because Blair He's freaking out. Blair goes and like fucks up all the vehicles and kills the dogs and and 
And then also destroys the radio. Yeah, we find him with a fucking axe, like, threatening everybody. He's already hurt someone and is, like, smashing up all of the computer equipment. Because, like, they say you radio. You cannot but, leave. Like, we can't leave. Don't you get it? We gotta get out of there. Yeah. <laughs> we can't let this thing escape. Jesus. Wilford Brimley is so good in this. He goes so ham in this role. It's so wonderful. Like, again, because he was unknown at this time. Yeah. No one knew the name Wilford Brimley. He hadn't done his commercials about diabetes yet. Diabetes. And so, yeah, it was, I don't know. I like it a lot that, like. Wait. That's him. <laughs> Did you not know that? Of course not. I'm not like you. I don't have just, like, <laughs> random just a, facts. A broken brain that just assimilates no, information. Not a broken brain. I'm, what I'm saying is that I just, just don't house all those facts. I didn't know that. I can't remember how to tie my shoes every day. So, <laughs> you know, what's the trade-off? I know a bunch of weird facts, and you can tie your shoes quickly. You've watched me do it. It's like I have to sit there and tell, talk to myself while I do it. I don't think you're alone in that, but... No, other people who are like me... <laughs> I and aren't neurotypical (laughs) diabetes um that's amazing yeah this is diabetes this is the guy who did the diabetes commercials I love him so but but the team is like yo Blair has gone off the deep end so they put him in the tool shed they said night night so so they learn that the blood it's been destroyed yeah so they're like Gary given yeah yeah they're like Gary you're out of here. You're the only one who had a key to this locker. Yeah, you're. We don't trust you anymore. So, um, Daddy McCready is now our, <laughs> is now our leader. So, McCready, Windows, and Nalls find Fuchs's burnt corpse and let's just assume that he committed suicide. To we, avoid... we watch him do it. Yeah, he takes a flare and lights himself on fire. It's, That's he self immolates. Yeah, it's it's a really cool scene that was inspired by. Um, so, yeah, there's a thing that certain Buddhist priests will do to protest, okay. uh, like typically human rights violations. Um, mm-hmm. But it was a big thing during Vietnam, uh, which is a largely Buddhist country, that they will self-immolate. That is, set themselves on fire and like sit there. And it's a really powerful thing to watch. And it's horrifying to watch. Uh, and yeah. like, see photos of and all of that. So this was, um, this was shot to mimic that, that Fuchs knows he's infected. Got it. Or assumes he's infected. And whatever part of his brain that's yeah. still functioning before he goes further just says, fuck this. Wow. Yeah. So um, the reason You're right, it's shot. You're right. We do like, see it. I don't know why yeah. I forgot that. So he's that's why he's shot in that like wide anamorphic format, mm-hmm. uh, which I can also get into. Um, but he, the reason it's shot like that is to mimic the photographs and uh, uh, video that was shown of that during the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that's it's it's a weird, not weird, but it, it's a cool, interesting, like horrifying thing that they chose to replicate in this movie as yeah. an act of self-sacrifice. Yeah, and I guess protest against the uh, assimilation of the body. Right, right. Yeah. So after we have that horrifying uh, scene, um, Windows uh, gets back to base, and McCready and Nalls are investigating McCready's uh, shack. Mm-hmm. And Nalls abandons McCready in like this huge snowstorm because he thinks that he's been assimilated um, because he finds his torn clothes in the shack. Yeah, so in like the the, yeah. the like wood burning stove or whatever. Yes, he thinks that he's getting a little sus, a little suspicious, mm-hmm. and don't be suspicious. 
Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. So the um, now the team is like, should we let him back inside or just let him out, you know, keep him out there? But then it's actually so hot when he breaks in. Normally, I don't oh like God. violence, but this is pretty hot. It's hot. Um, he breaks in and and has like dynamite. He's his frozen beard and hair and his wild ass eyes. Like he looks crazy. It's very in this um. It's very um. Jack and Jackness. It's very Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Oh, it totally is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But he's yeah he's got uh, a fucking flare and a big old bunch of bundle of dynamite, and he's like. Motherfuckers. You messed with the wrong don't daddy. You, yeah, you don't touch this daddy. I'm the dream daddy. Have you seen this hair? Have you seen this beard? Have, Have you, you seen, seen my ugly hat? Have you seen how much J&B scotch I drink? Oh <laughs> my god. Oh, okay. So um, Norris then just out of nowhere has a heart attack. Um, yeah, that's fair. I mean, given like yeah. this is a stressful situation, I'd have a heart attack in this situation. Granted, I'm a heavy smoker, but like, I always think I'm gonna have a heart attack. I have anxiety, <laughs> so <laughs> I always think I'm having a heart attack. So probably will later tonight because I've had so much coffee today. I know I'm already feeling it. So Copper is trying to save Norris. Mm-hmm. I believe defibrillate is yeah. the na- is the is the word defibrillate. Um, yep. I'm a dictionary. I know these things. Um, and this part is sick, too, because his chest is just like opens up like a fucking mouth and bites. Literally has teeth. Yeah. Yeah. And bites Copper's arms, which huh, kills him. Another cool little production note here. So instead of having like doing a whole bunch of extra makeup work to have uh, Charles Hallahan be the actor here. Mm hmm. Uh, Botten found a double amputee and built prosthetic arms for him full of like wax bones and like jello and oh. like all this different shit. And so again, it was shot in reverse, right? Uh-huh. So the stomach is a mechanical clamp. And so they, or I, don't, I actually don't remember if it was shot in reverse or not, but I know that it was a literal mechanical, like it's a bear trap. I was going to say a bear trap. But like, uh, I think it was like a pneumatic thing or something like that. So they had the mouth open filmed that him put his arms in film that and then that's why it looks a little on the choppy side but because the editing was so good it actually still looks really good yeah i didn't Um, really notice that much and they sped the film up a little bit there Mm -hmm. and then he the amputee the actor who was playing that the stunt person who was playing that pulls his arms out and they had done like a, a, a definitive score that you can't see. Stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you see him and then they did it on um, uh, for the wide shot. They had it on Hallahan as well. Sweet. That's why there's those cuts there. But it looks so cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, so because because we we have to set everything on fire. Um, <laughs> McCready is the one who sets Norris thing on fire. But there's a problem because Norris's head just like up and leaves, just like detaches. It's a little like a like tongue appendage up to the ceiling and like drags itself off, and it's so gross. And it so is cool. amazing. And this is one of the reasons that the budget went up so much. This scene was so expensive to film. Honestly, worth it. Yep. Um, and but ends up being the head ends up also being burnt up. But it was a really fun touch that like. 
any you have to incinerate the entire it's not like you just kill you've got to get every cell yeah it's not like you just kill one part yeah you have to get every cell and they also uh literally they actually lit that head on fire but they didn't realize that what was inside of it was like noxious and super flammable oh no so they almost killed the crest (laughs) that's scary that's so dumb so (laughs) sorry it's just like one of those moments of just like yeah, you can't make a horror film without endangering lives, apparently. <laughs> I guess not. Well, unless you fully just use computers and green screens. Yeah. Um, and then it looks like shit, so. Yeah. yeah. Human Suffer lives for are your art. I guess. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, guess who dies next? Clark. Um, McCready has to kill Clark be- because self-defense, essentially, because he lunges at him with a fucking knife. Yeah, he has like um, that scalpel that he grabbed earlier that we see. Yeah. And just like tries to get at him and McCready's just like, fuck you, bitch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm done with this. Yeah. And and this is when the characters in the movie kind of realize what we just said, that you have to kill every cell because mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it has its own um, survival instinct. So what is this amazing scene that we, we're just like going on and on and on about? <laughs> um, what happens is um, everyone's tied up and we get this just like, tense testing of the blood samples with a heated piece of wire and the reason that we do it with the heated piece of wire is because the if it's the blood of the thing mm-hmm. the the blood like freaks out yeah right? yeah it tries yeah. it's, it's a, a self-preservation yeah. sort of thing it's like how it's supposed to read like that's but if a, it's, it's a flight response yeah but if it's um and this goes back to the um every every cell yeah has its own fight or flight instinct um, mm-hmm. or just survival instincts, whatever. Same thing. And obviously, if, if it's just human blood, it's not going to do anything. Right. It You know, it's just going to... Yeah, it's just going to do what blood does when you hit it with... It's going to like bubble a little bit. Yeah, it's going to be gross. It's going to smell bad. It, smell like iron. Well, so everyone passes the test through, again, this just very tense... Oh, my God. Now I'm going to show you what I already know. Yeah, person by person. Um, Uh, When he tests his own blood. And then it's surprising that Clark wasn't assimilated. We think that he's, we're led to believe that he is because he was in contact with the dog so much. But who is, everyone passes the test except Palmer. Mm -hmm. The blood jumps from the heat and (laughs) within being, with being exposed, Palmer transforms and infects windows so then yeah. McCready has to burn them both, is kind of left with oh, no choice. Such a horrifying and sad scene. I always feel for Windows. I really want to take care of him like a precious baby in this movie. That's fair. His name is fucking, his name is Windows. And he reminds me so much of my favorite character from MASH, Radar. Fair. So I'm just like, mm, Poor baby, Windows. Baby. So uh, then Childs, they're, they're going to go test Blair. So Childs has to stay on guard mm-hmm. while they go test Blair. Blair's gone. Um, and is trying to assemble a flying saucer, mm-hmm. which like, okay, nice. You do you clever. Um, then when they, when they get back, Childs is now missing. It's like, this is like herding sheep. Um, <laughs> just like running away. That would be easy. Herding corgis, I guess. Like ones that don't <laughs> Hurting wanna... the things that herd. Exactly. They like, don't want to be herded. Um, and so... We find out that the power generator is now like, yeah, it's shot. It's done. Um, McCready says that the thing will probably go back into hibernation 
until a rescue team arrives. Right. McCready, Gary, and Nalls decide the only thing to do was to detonate the station. That's yeah, the only way to destroy the whole just, place. Just, yeah, just fuck it. Light Send it, it up on in fire. flames. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're setting explosives and Blair kills Gary. The Blair thing, yeah. Yeah, the Blair thing kills um <laughs> The Blair thing, not to be confused with the Blair Witch. Um, <laughs> uh, kills Gary, and then Nalls is just gone. Like, everyone just keeps, like, popping in and out. Like, um, Yeah, so there was originally a really cool scene that was written um, that Carpenter was really pissed that they didn't get to keep, mm-hmm. where we actually see Nalls' death. Because he really likes Nalls as a character. Um, he's talked about oh, that. Oh, right, right. So Nalls is faced by the Blair thing mm-hmm. at one point and decides to light himself on fire as well. Oh, okay. Uh, to kill himself. Yeah, so Nalls kills himself to not be assimilated. I get why um, they didn't... He gets, didn't... like, cornered. Yeah. Yeah. I get why they didn't keep that in there, though, because we already have a similar death to it. We do, um, but it's, it was in a tense moment, and I think it would have really helped elevate that and also give a good death to a character that, like, we're supposed to care about. Like, we're supposed to care about all of these characters, and everybody yeah. but Nalls and Bennings gets... Or not Bennings, uh... Yeah, everybody but Nulls gets a like a a death, you know. Yeah, I get that, but I I don't know. I don't know if you I don't know if you need like two of the same deaths. It's just frustrating. In one slasher because he just disappears in the well in the in the movie it 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 can fuck with the storyline where you're left wondering if Nulls is alive, right? Yeah, which isn't a bad thing. No, um, just with the way it ends, I think it's it would have been better to have that like moment of clarity. I don't know. I don't I know. Like, I like to ask questions, but <laughs> it's it's. It's art. You can do it in a thousand different ways. Fair enough. So Blair, who becomes the Blair, who who is the Blair thing, but like kind of transforms here yeah. um, into this spooky looking crazy creature. It's very evil dead too. Mm-hmm. Destroys the detonator. Um, McCready is like, is like, okay, we got to fucking do this. Triggers the explosives using a stick of dynamite because the detonator is gone. Yeah. He um, loves dynamite. <laughs> He's hot as dynamite. Oh my god! Mm. Oh my! I hate myself. Um, <laughs> so the base is destroyed now, um, and this is our aftermath scene. McCready is sitting as the station burns. Childs is there. Um, he got lost in the storm. It's like it's still like a pretty bad snowstorm. Mm-hmm. Um, while trying to get Blair, they're both just freezing. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a really bad storm. They're like freezing and they're exhausted, and this is just really bleak. Um, it's been and, like forty-eight hours of like almost no sleep for both of them. Yeah, and they're having a moment to kind of reflect, and they're drinking scotch. Yeah, and that's the end. And it just ends on them laughing mm-hmm. and sharing the bottle of scotch. And mm-hmm. It's so oh my god. There's so many theories about the end of this film. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Whew. So, like I like we said at the top, this this movie uh, came from a short story and then was made into a movie in 1951. Yes, and then we have this 1982 film. Um, yeah, the, by the very famous Howard Hawks, who made yes. like so many westerns, and also yes. the original adaptation of this. Yes, and Christian Nyby was the director. And John Carpenter was a huge fan of the well, 1951. Was his movie as a kid, yeah, yeah. He said he said multiple times like this is the film that got me into film. And there are definite there are definite similarities, of course, um, but there are definite yeah. differences that kind of reflect uh, the time period that we were in. Because in 1951, um, we were experiencing, 
you know, the aftermath of like World War Two mm-hmm. and all Korean of, War, Korean War, um, all of those things. Fear and, of the bomb. Yeah. And so we kind of had more of a sense of community and camaraderie like after that um because you had to have people working together yeah you're divided but you're together yeah yeah there's a utopic interpretation interpretation of of that of that era there's lots of other things to dig into but i think that's a that's a good way to look at it in terms of like the art interpretation in terms of history yeah and i mean and it and it shows with the people who are working together in that movie it they kind of work together as a group yeah it's much more collaborative yeah and i think that that is also it's a sign of it's a sign of the times um because like i said we were people were divided but the people who were on the same side were working as like a team yeah during that time yeah and the difference between that movie and the the 1982 The Thing is John Carpenter really dove into what happens when people... Like, all of these men are just here to do a job. They're not friends. They're not really working together ever. Yeah, there's a small sense of camaraderie that just comes from living together, but it's not... They're the not. Same thing at all. No, yeah. this isn't like D-Day camaraderie. This yeah. is. And maybe if they had all actually worked together and not been so suspicious of one another, this movie would have ended very differently because they, they don't. There, there is not an ounce of trust in this movie um, between any character except for maybe with Clark and the dog. Yeah, um, and I think everybody kind of trusts Windows. Like, Windows is sort of painted as, like, they all sort of look at him as a son or, like, a kid brother, I think, depending on their age. Like, everybody... Right. He's the only one, I think, who's ever treated well by any other character. Yeah, and I, I definitely I definitely see that, but I think in general, people aren't... Nobody's, like, working together here. Everyone wants yeah. to be... There's, there's, like I said in the beginning, that, like machismo where it's like i want to be the Huge captain i want to and and because of that they all end up dying because they're not working together they're they're very much so in this for their own personal um personal shit yeah and and again it just like it ends up in complete destruction yeah so those are the huge differences that I see between the 1951 movie and then the 1982 movie, which I think is brilliant. I think it. I think John Carpenter took an idea that, again, has been used over and over and over again, but we're always interested in it because you can play with the psychology of it. How do these characters... It's, it's kind of like... It's not dissimilar to... The idea of characters being trapped somewhere like trapped in like like how i um what i said in our blair witch project um episode where these characters are it's that typical trope of these characters are trapped together they're in the woods but they can't escape so they're trapped they're in a room together essentially yeah it's just scarier because you think you can get out but you can't totally um so that's a very common trope that we get for plots and so is this and I think that it's the gift that keeps on giving because you can add in different um, psychological issues into that by changing details. Absolutely. And it's just really cool. That's yeah. that's my take on it. I really do love that. I think that's a I, I love that take on it. Um, one of the 
interesting things about this movie. So we talk a lot about diversity in film. Yes. Um, this is a, a, a diverse film in terms of the casting. Uh, but it's all men. I was going to say, not not on the, the gender spectrum, but that's... Yeah. That's okay. So that was on purpose. <laughs> in this one, yeah, in this one, that's okay. It, it, I think it's it, sending a message. It absolutely is. And Carpenter's known for, like, we'll talk about this when we talk about Halloween, but he's like, I didn't make a morality play. Y'all, fuck off. It's just a, it's a scary story about babysitters. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's like, I wasn't talking about virginity. I don't give a shit who you fuck or when. Um <laughs> He gets very tired when he gets asked about that. I've seen him in interviews do that, and he just like sighs every single time he has to talk about it. He's like, I wasn't trying to comment on any woman's sexuality. God. But he <laughs> was commenting on male sexuality here. Um, so he and Lancaster, when writing the script, fought constantly. Okay. Um, which happens. Like, that's that's a writer's room. Like, there's always... And fighting being, like, a, a soft term here, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we're not we're not talking about, like, they were having knockdown, drag-out fights with their machismo. Yeah. It was more like, no, this is where the story should go. No, this is where the story should go. No, this is where the story... It's having two strong and very good writers in the same room. Yeah. You're going to you're gonna butt heads. Yeah. I butted heads with... I, I butted heads with every single co-writer I've ever had. And it's just because it gets high and you get precious about ideas and you, the older you get and the more experience you get, the less that happens, but it still happens, right? Of course. So one of the things they did agree on is that they wanted it to focus as a critique of machismo mm-hmm. and why that's a bad thing. Um, it's not a full morality play. They more wanted to just make a really good, cool movie, which they did, but they did discuss this in the writer's room over the years it took to develop the script. Yeah. Um, so the other thing, and there's been more recent uh, reinterpretations of this film that I really love. Uh, I'll include the article that actually uh, discusses this but in the footnotes, but I, I don't have it up at the moment. My bad. Um, there's been a reinterpretation of it that is taught, commenting on male sexuality. So Lancaster and Carpenter both agreed that there shouldn't be a woman in the film because people, the audience would read it at, read her as a romantic viability and didn't want that to muddle what the story is about well and i think that's what happens in the 1951 because there's that character's name is nikki Mm -hmm. in in that and there's all of this um from all the other dudes there's this like basically um i think it's henby is the is the character that sounds right but it's like Hemby and Nikki sitting in a tree right like it's basically that they're like making fun of him because they're like you like this girl and it, it is and I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's where that idea came from of like, oh, that's kind of distracting from the yeah. plot and it's weird and sexist and like yeah, exactly. all of that. They were like, okay, well, we if we put a woman in here, it she turns into a sex object and we don't want to do that. It's like, true. Carter's always it's been so low-key unfortunate. Woke. There are certain other problems with other of his films, but this is not one of them where he was like, no, that that's so not okay. Hendry, sorry. Hendry, yeah, it was not Hendry, Hendry, not yeah, Hendry. Hendry. That's right. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, they were they were talking about it and they were just like, yeah, no, I don't. We don't want to put a woman in here because the audience is going to read her as a love interest. Mm-hmm. They would they were explicitly not writing anybody that way, but they didn't want that to come across. So recent reinterpretations of the film have looked at it as also fighting against one's uh, perceived homosexuality or queerness in general, which I think is really great or great as an interpretation because. When you look at this film, you're watching men compete with each other for who's top. And there can be a lot of that read into here. Like, Knowles can be read as a, a coded queer character. Sure. Right? 
Yeah. Um, young black dude roller skates listens to disco. Um, a tad like he's skinny and lanky and tall and all of these things. Like I've, I know a lot of people who interpret Nalls as queer. Um, yeah. And also interpret McCready as queer, uh, but repressed. Interesting. Um, there are other bad interpretations that look at the rivalry between him and Childs as a romantic tension, but that's just slash fic bullshit. Right. <laughs> I more think it is I th- knowing Russell and how much he imports into his characters that he doesn't always talk about, but he does sometimes, and it gives you an insight to him as an actor. Mm-hmm. I think it, it, it seems clear to me that Russell was bringing in um, a racial thing there mm-hmm. where McCready would have been a Vietnam pilot. Vietnam was the first, one of the first, if not the first, integrated unit. Uh, yeah, it was the first. It was the first time the U.S. Army had ever been integrated between um, uh, uh, soldiers of different races. Yeah. Like, units were integrated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and McCready would have definitely served in that. Like, he's 35 in this movie mm-hmm. uh, that's taking place in the 1980s-ish. Yeah. Um. And so he definitely would have served in Vietnam. That's the only way he would have been a helicopter pilot. It's the only way he would have been pulled for like a, a research mission, right? Yeah. Um, so it seems like that's what's going on there more. Mm-hmm. But I do, I think this, there's such, there's so much interesting things. There's so many interesting things that can come from doing, you know, a monogendered film, right? Yeah. And just to speak on like the lack of, um, a woman in this film, you either get the sexual, the sexualization, the mm-hmm. over sexualization, or you and get. You know, that, producers would have pushed for that too. Oh, of course. Or you get that kind of disgusting, like, oh, she's a handy woman. She knows what she like. That bullshit she's not of like, like the other girls. She's like the boys. She had four brothers. She's not worried about breaking a nail. So you, <laughs> well, and it's so annoying because I mean, I mean, it's completely projected onto that character no matter what right. it's i mean i think the movie alien does such a beautiful job with having yes, ripley that, as yeah. our um lead character mm-hmm. but it's a risk and it and i'm so glad that that one did so well because you you could have easily had and it's the way that the other characters treat ridley exactly or ripley yeah, Ridley Scott was the director. Ugh, yeah. yeah, I got... I know, it's so hard. Ugh, names, names. <laughs> Ellen Ripley, yes. Yes, yes. Um, where you get... You get how how the other characters, and namely the male characters, treat her. Yes. So that's where Alien is a win in my book. But in something like this, where the commentary is the machismo... Yes. It would easily fall into that category of, oh, she can do things? Absolutely. Ugh, yeah. yeah. And unless you had like, it would have to be like 50, 50. Yeah. Um, not that there are only two genders. I'm not trying to endorse a binary here, but it would like, have to yeah. be even more diverse on the gender spectrum. Exactly. Yeah. And again, you're a, a 1982 audience. And I think Carpenter was looking ahead and saying like, we could do this, but we can't do it right now. Right. Um, I think he was very aware. He and Lancaster were both very aware of what time they were living in, whether or not they believe that. And I don't think they did. Right. Um, I think it was really interesting. There's also been a lot of really cool. Uh, I mean, there's there's so many articles and books and yada yada written about this movie. And I probably could write my own book one day. Maybe I will <laughs> on this movie. But 
I don't um, personally mind that it's all men. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a good thing because it is the commentary. It's the point. Yeah, yeah, that is the point of mm-hmm. the movie, and I think it's a very good thing to talk about. It's it's one of the first times we ever see something directly addressing and criticizing toxic masculinity. Totally. I mean, in in a major studio film, this is Universal. Yeah. Like this is not small. You know, like yeah. and like Carpenter was an indie director at the time. It's actually why he was uh, he had been approached in what seventy uh, six about yeah. this project, but they were like, ah, but he's a he's an indie guy, right? At that right, point, right, he had right. done Dark Star, yeah, and that's about it. <laughs> he wouldn't do Halloween until seventy eight. That was an indie production, yeah. Uh, like he hadn't done a. This was his first major studio film, I think. Um, you would know better than me just because he's he's your dude. Yeah, and I'm just I I get his timeline fucked up in my head, but yeah, he was not like a he was a big deal, mm-hmm. but he was an indie guy. Like it wasn't like you were hiring uh, um, Spielberg. Yeah, you weren't. Yeah. Hi- well, even Spielberg at this point was. I guess this was a he, he had just started doing major studio stuff, right? Because of ET. Yeah, ET, Star Wars, it, uh, uh, Indiana Jones. Um, yeah. But yeah, so there's a lot of really amazing stuff that I think that Carpenter and Lancaster were doing with the script. And I think they did a great job crafting the script. But in I... 1982, no one else did. Yeah. <laughs> the absolute gall. <laughs> Sorry. The absolute gall of the fucking criticism of this movie in 1982. I've read is... the Roger Ebert one. It's awful what the hell it's it's he's so so stupid i've never agreed with ebert i've never agreed with ebert and i'm so glad that i get proven right and it's very that review of the movie is very um it's almost talking down to moviegoers because it's like well if that's you know i'm sure a lot of moviegoers will like this one they did not either audiences hated this movie yeah yeah exactly like what we said (laughs) what we said um earlier but it's when i read that review i was like who hurt you right (laughs) i was like i because i've i've read quite a few of his reviews um just of different movies and normally i'm like oh that's actually you know like that's fairly objective and and like he's not terrible i don't hate roger ebert at all but i do (laughs) that's that's fair i do think i do think that um he can be objective but in this one i was like who hurt you you're this is a this is weird well and like carpenter was changing the horror genre that's why we're doing him this month carpenter flipped the horror genre on his daddy as well oh my god i'm sorry i had to look at kurt russell for a really long time guys i'm just really excited <laughs> slipping out your seat I'm just really excited. <laughs> i can't stop she's hot to trot um oh. so <laughs> what was amazing we talked about this on previous episodes about certain films from this era but i think what carpenter the thing we can really lay at his feet is reinventing what horror was he wasn't the only one but i think he's the most influential one and we'll talk yeah. about that with a couple of the other films we're covering. We're, cover- we're not covering any, like, a wide range of his films in terms of years. I think we're only doing six years, I think. Probably, but they're six of his best. Well, uh, yeah, six of his best years, for sure. Yeah, that's during- what I meant. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, we're not covering six, six, six of films. his movies. Yeah, no. We're covering six of his best years. Yeah, and I, I don't think there's a bad one for him, but, like, well, that's not entirely true. But, like, we're not even getting into him in the 90s. Um, and late 80s. This is really, we're doing like 78 to I think 86. Right. And so like we're, yeah, six, six, eight years 
um, of his career. And in that time, he flipped this genre along with people like Toby Hooper, who's a good friend of his, who did Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Ridley Scott, who was not a conventionally considered horror director, but we covered Alien and that was so important. Uh, the Omen, The Exorcist, Carrie, like all of these sort of movies were turning what we had considered horror into something new. I think this is um, why I'm obsessed with the 80s. Like I am weirdly obsessed with the 80s. Yeah. Like late 70s into the 80s. I don't know what it is about the, about the um, just art in general, like music uh movies like like i don't know i don't know what it is I'm little just, art like roy lichtenstein was huge, huge yeah, in this era I'm like just, uh, uh uh maplethorpe like i'm just so strangely obsessed with the 80s but yeah. anyway <laughs> um but yeah so there was an article by alan spencer in starlog and he called it quote a cold and sterile horror movie attempting to cash in on the general audience against the quote optimism of et the reassuring return of star trek to the technical perfection of tron tron looks like shit these days and the sheer and i'm not kidding here the sheer integrity of blade runner end quote some people are just so upset so all those movies came out this year in this summer right yeah. star trek 2 amazing wrath of khan such a good movie et but it's optimistic. Blockbuster, though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it made 600-something million dollars. Yep. <laughs> it's one of the most profitable films of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, Tron, I like Tron. It's a fun movie. It doesn't look... It, like, I'm sure in 1982 it looked futuristic and awesome and cool. It looks like Pong. <laughs> it looks like Pong. <laughs> Another 80s reference for... Yeah. And <laughs> younger Blade listeners. Runner. Blade Runner, gorgeous. One of my least favorite movies of all time. It's not a good movie. We will get into it eventually, I'm sure. I know I'm going to get canceled for saying that, but Blade Runner is a bad movie and shouldn't have been made. So other people called the plot boring. Yeah. Linda Gross from the LA Times said it was, quote, bereft, despairing, and nihilistic, end quote. She's uh, not wrong, but it's not a bad thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> bereft. Gary Arnold from the Washington Post said it was a witty touch to open the thing with having already overcome the Norwegian base. Oh, sorry. Never mind. Sorry, sorry. Cut that. Cut that. Cut that. Because I'm talking about negative ones. Um, so people thought the actors were good, but they thought the characters were boring and no one should care about them. Which, again, wild. Like, all of these actors. So here's where I'm going to get into that piece. What's really cool about one of the production parts of this film is that the actors all would do different, like get-togethers mm-hmm. and develop the characters themselves. Like Lancaster and Carpenter both said, here's the basic gist of your character. Please make them your own. That's why they hired the people they did. Do you think that they don't, that people who reviewed this movie saying that, do you think that that maybe they were lacking? Um, I'm just wondering if maybe it's attributed to it being a single gendered movie. You know what I mean? Because what endears a lot of people to characters is if they know that they have like a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a wife at home or kids, yeah. a wife at home, gross. But you know what I mean? Like in this particular situation where yeah, they're, no where they're like, on an oh, expedition. Well, I mean, what are you going to do when you rotate out There's here? no, yeah. there's, there's zero romance in it or romantic like interests yeah. in it, which obviously again was the point but i'm just wondering if maybe that was part of what didn't endear some people to to these characters because i care about most of these characters by by the time of their death um yeah i think it's really some well more than others yeah. 
But that's par for the course for any movie. Mm -hmm. Um, But no, I think they actually, with what they were trying to do to also, in a... Also, again, okay, I'm having like 10,000 thoughts at once. There's so many about this movie. We could um, go, again, we could do an entire like series on just this movie. Also, it's like, here's the thing. I know that this this is a slasher monster movie, but it's not the most straightforward one. Like, you wouldn't... Yeah, it, like, it's, it not, is it's a, not Alien, which it was compared to, and it's actually the reason it ended up getting made. Alien is the reason this movie got made. Yeah, I believe that. And it's not its not your slasher, like, kids go to camp and they each die one by one. Yeah. It's, it's a different kind of slasher. And traditionally in slashers, the point is, is that there's not a lot of character development. There definitely can be. You can break outside mm-hmm. of that box. Please do. But traditionally in in other slasher movies that people love, there's no character development whatsoever. A year and change ago. Like I don't even remember those characters. Yeah. I obviously remember the movie, but I don't remember the characters. So like There's the rapist cook, the lead, the best friend or cousin cousin. whatever, and that's it. That's all I remember. And oh, and the and the really gross camp leader who's dating the like 16 year old counselor but i don't know much about them like i know i could describe who they are but i couldn't tell you anything about their life other than those little small facts that's what's interesting to me about the reviews of this movie because i'm like yeah it's a slasher you guys love that you guys love not knowing about the characters and then seeing them die like i yeah. you, you've rated so many movies before this one and after it that were straight up slashers that I personally don't like because there's not development of character. So I'm just kind of like, what? what's your actual beef? Yeah. And so like a lot of people were, they thought that it was bad that um, there's one review that talks about how it's stupid that Russell's hero is undertake is undercut by his suicidal approach to the thing, which I'm sorry, this thing can assimilate the entire world in three years and change. I would also be running a kamikaze mission against this thing. I don't think that I'm going to survive in that moment. I know I've got to kill it. I know I'm not going to make it out. I'm in Antarctica. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's just a cold acceptance of facts. That's not suicidality. That's understand. That's being a reasonable human. That's knowing what's going to happen to you. Well, and I think and knowing that, what you have to do. Yeah, I disagree with that review because I. It makes him more of a hero. Well, and I also think that it makes you really feel for that person because. They, they they don't want to die. It's the it's these unfortunate circumstances yeah. that have have led them here. And if anything, I think that should endear you to the character because you're you're thinking you're thinking they have no choice. Yeah. And that's a horrifying thing in itself, is that they have no choice but to do this. Yeah. It's, so, it's fatalistic in a mm-hmm. really sad way and that's so cool yeah that's that's really what I was what I was getting at I think I I think suicidality versus not is beside the point I don't think yeah. that I don't think that should have even entered the chat yeah I this person has has no <laughs> like the plot of this movie is not is not going to end up happy sunshine rainbows for anyone. And it sets you up for that. So if you're expecting that, then you got to the wrong movie. Yep. So I I think that review is silly. So (laughs) poor John Carpenter. So he, we had said, um, or I had said earlier that like, I was going to talk about why I think he's such a humble director. 
this is the movie that humbled him. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a quote from 2008. And uh, again, we'll put the we'll drop the link in the footnotes to yeah. the full article. But uh, he says, and I'm quoting all of this here. I take every failure hard. The one I took the hardest was a thing. Mm-hmm. My career would have been different if that had been a big hit. He was on a really upward trend here, right? Right. Um, says the movie was hated even by science fiction fans. They thought I had betrayed some kind of trust and the piling on was insane. Even the original movie's director, Christian Nyby, was dissing me. So, yeah, and, like, this is, like, a hero of his. That's sad. Yeah, like, think about what that would feel like. This would be, like, for me, if I made a movie and John Carpenter said, that's a fucking piece of shit and he should go kill himself. That's That's like when Mariah Carey said that she doesn't know who Ariana Grande is. Right? Like, that's just so painful. Yeah. That like one of the greatest directors of all time, John Carpenter, is being criticized by one of his favorite directors again, of all time. And like, but then again, Mariah Carey says claims that she doesn't know anybody. She I don't know what kind that. of what kind of lawyer's oath she's under, but she's claimed she doesn't know anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Ariana Grande uh, should not have taken that personally, but I would have. Oh, she did, and she made it good. She just put it into her work, which is what Carpenter did. He's like, fuck that, then. I'm just going to go back and be a fucking indie director. Like, I'm not going to be a major studio director, and that's fine. Right. I'm going to go make two really dope albums, uh, help make video games, play video games. Yeah. Like, and make more movies that I want to make. I'm going to make references to Lovecraft all the time. Like, this is fun. I love this. Fine. Fuck you. (laughs) Right, right. You gave me a big studio film. You didn't like what I did. Fuck off. I'm going back indie. Well, it's always it's always the risk, right? Yeah. You've, you've got to take risks. But, but. Oh, So here's a quote from Nybe's, uh, Christian Nybe's, um review of this movie. And okay. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. Oh, I'm ready, I think. He says, quote, if you want blood, go to the slaughterhouse. All in all, it's a terrific commercial for J&B Scotch. End quote. Mm. <laughs> that's so heartbreaking that's, that's like that's hard that's rough um damn why did people just pick this movie to shit on this is definitely not <laughs> e- not even in the context of 1982 it's not the worst one that came out no so on top of that it was nominated for a razzie for worst musical score what right <laughs> I own the score. I buy. I have the CD. <laughs> it's so good. Was 1982 kind of like a weird vortex? Coke like was popping 20, off. Like 2020 was. Yeah. Like because that. I think just it's even doesn't... more 2016, where people were just ignoring bad things oh. and, and shouting down good things. That just doesn't. Uh, just like none of this makes any sense because. I don't. I honestly don't really remember the score yeah. from the movie, but that's not necessarily a bad thing if you if you're not because the mu- the music is supposed to just be there for atmosphere anyway. So you're not, you know. I mean, yeah. unless it's like the opening of Halloween, because that shit is just a banger. Yes, but you know what I mean. Totally. It. Um, yeah. <laughs> no. For it's worse. That's so sad. Yeah. So. I think we should talk about. Um, we're running a little on time here, so I want to get in just a quick segment. So since the since oh, sorry, so since this is the first movie we're doing for Carpenter Month, I think it's important to sort of give everybody a primer for who he is as a director. Go for it, babe. And I think this is one of his most emblematic films. Not his most. I think that's the next one. One of the ones we're covering later. Okay. Um, but this is one of his most, if not his most, emblematic film. 
So when I say that, what I mean is like what we talk about with any sort of auteur director or auteur, I don't ever know how to say it. Um, so he is always about these, go- he, he cares so much about cinematography. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about this in the Halloween episode, especially um, and um, others, but this is a really cool use of uh, anamorphic format. Right. Um, he and one of the producers, even in the cinematography team, or the, like the, the the film and camera crew, mm-hmm. uh, were working to produce special cameras for this with Panavision. Um, they didn't actually be able to; they weren't actually able to do that. But that's kind of care that he talks that he takes, right? Yeah, he is not the inventor of any shot, but he might be the perfecter of several shots, right? And it's it's because he trusts his cinematographers and his DPs to mm-hmm. do things right. But he also has a vision, and he carries a vision out. He never doesn't carry a vision out. Yeah. I've seen most of his films. There's never a time that you don't look at it and go, yep, that's mm-hmm. the hand. Mm-hmm. We're talking different types of like dolly and zolly shots, mm-hmm. uh, mostly dolly or like steady cam yeah. um, shots. Those are two different things, but yes. Um, we're talking anamorphic format, widescreen formats, right? Yeah. Um, follow I, I, shots. Exactly. Yeah. Follow shots are a huge thing that he does. He also plays with color in a lot of ways. Yeah. In really cool Definitely. ways. He loves fucking with color. He must have like four cones in his eyes or something like that. The way <laughs> he can see color. Yeah. Uh, twice what I have. Right. Um, <laughs> so he, um, they actually originally wanted to shoot this in black and white. Uh, but, Just like the 1951 mm-hmm. one. Got it. Um, but Universal was like, oh, but we can't. That's going to fuck with us getting TV distribution. Because <laughs> oh. cable had just become a thing. Oh, sure. So sure. they were like worried about the cable cut. Um, and that it wouldn't be able to get picked up. Because people didn't want to watch black and white movies that were from the present. Um, that's honestly, I understand that. Yeah, the artist if won you an had Oscar. Just, but like, yeah. If you had just gotten color TV, really? You're right. I get, I get it. But I, they... Uh, <laughs> Well, color TV had been out forever, but yeah, I know what you mean. Well, but yeah. not everybody had it when it came out. Fair enough, yeah. Um, and more, yeah, more and more homes are getting TVs in the in the seventies. It and also 80s. takes yeah. a while for us. That would be like right when that would have been like five years after the iPhone coming out, being like go back to that flip phone, Nokia yeah. brick. Yeah, get the razor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People aren't interested. Yeah, I, I get it. Yeah, which I'm sure. Fair. Razors have now come back. Yeah, after, so as a Nokia brick. Yeah. Yeah. After at least ten plus years of the iPhone being out. Yeah. So I think I think that's fair. Totally. <laughs> um yeah, I understand it. Um it would have been a cool artistic choice. I would love to see a black and white cut of this film. Sure. Um, if it were actually shot on black and white and not like uh de uh, yeah. uh desaturated. Yeah. But um they did desaturate the whole film. Um mm-hmm. but they did it in camera. So they weren't shooting they were shooting, you know, on the standard uh really good film at the time. Um, but they were, uh, when they weren't allowed to do it in black and white, they decided to take all tone, every single color down. Mm-hmm. So that's Bleak. why, yeah, everybody's <laughs> dressed in like really drab browns, grays, the entire base is gray. All the blues that are used are super muted. Mm-hmm. And this, this film uses blue in a really cool way. Oh yeah. Um, because it's one of the only colors you see that's not a part of like the assimilated thing or someone's blood, yes. right? And it makes those moments pop so much more. Mm-hmm. It makes you focus on the blood, the thing, all of that. But mm-hmm. everything else in the movie is very dark, yeah. very drab, and is intended to like, 
it depresses you on purpose, visually speaking, right? Yeah. Like it does it as like an undercut to your mental state while watching it. And that's another thing that he does a lot. Like um, Halloween is actually fairly bright. Yes. It's muted, but it's very bright. And that was just because of the way they, it was shot. Yeah. But like, and even coming down to the score, right? Like he didn't write, he, he was not the composer for this. Mm-hmm. Um, he did do a few pieces, but he handed it over to Ennio uh, Morricone. But that was on purpose. He wanted to say, like, look, I love your music and I want you to, I think you can create my vision. And Ennio Morricone was a fan of John Carpenter's, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is wild because, again, that dude is such a fucking big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's that sort of like him working on the script, him working in the camera department, him working in music, him working on uh, as being the director and then him working with actors. Yeah. And um, he's, you know, there's uh, primarily I'm re- referring to the, uh, relationship between him and Russell. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the way he helped train Keith David to be a cinematic actor. Mm-hmm. Keith David came from theater. Mm-hmm. And so that's why his performance is so big in this all the time. Yeah. Is that he was really having a hard time. Um, he worked with Carpenter and then Richard Mosser, who played Clark, mm-hmm. to like learn how to tone down his performance. Yeah. Because he was big the whole time and not he was having to get used to this is one of the big differences between cinema and um uh, cinematic acting and theatrical acting is mm-hmm. that you can't show every emotion on your face all yeah. the time in on film it reads really weird and like a soap opera right mm-hmm. um they the rule uh that i always cite is the one of the first ones i was taught is that in theater everything is two times bigger mm-hmm. and in film everything is two times smaller yep right more nuanced yeah yeah and you, you have to be because it's like um, like we've talked about this before, but like when you're supposed to be like a foot apart, you're standing six inches apart on film just because of the way it looks. It's all, um, it's all in the eyes and the, in the subtext. It's yeah. not, you don't have to do anything. And in theater, it literally big. can't be subtext because there's people in the fucking rafters. Who paid for a <laughs> ticket. Yes, yep. absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you act to the rafters for a reason. So you, if you sit on front row, it's going to look real weird. If you sit in the rafters, it's going to look pretty good. You would never do Broadway arms on camera unless no. you were in a comedy, probably. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Uh, so I think that that's I. So that's sort of the things that we're going to be talking about the rest of the month when we talk about Carpenter. But I just want to give like a quick primer on what sure. to look out for when we say this is Carpenter esque. This is what he does. Yeah. Um, and it and it comes down to performances too. Like even his biggest perf- like not his personal performances, but the ones he directs. Yes. The biggest performances are still weird and nuanced and kind of different and not like other things that were out at the time. Totally. I think that's why he's such an icon is that no one else really makes movies like he does. And I wouldn't really call him an auteur, right? He doesn't make a single type of film. Yeah. But you can always tell it's him. For sure. For sure. He puts that his makes stamp sense, on right? it. Yeah. And I would absolutely. say like, like Del Toro is mm-hmm. closest to him probably. Mm-hmm. Like I can always put a Del Toro film, whether he's produ- producer or director or whatever. Yeah. But it's not the same thing all the time. And he's closer to an auteur than carpenter is i would say mm-hmm. but like it's not he's not scorsese yeah he's not uh tarantino he's not um name that is gonna come to me like maybe edgar wright would be another one to put in mm-hmm. so i think that that's sort of who i'm thinking about you know when it comes down to it um and so i think it's interesting that's why i'm really excited to talk about him i've had a lot of fun talking about my favorite horror film of all time today yeah. Um, yeah. So that's sort of the, the like the bo- the broad primer for Carpenter of things to look out for. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll mention more as we go throughout, but I wanted to because it's the first episode, just sort of run through that. We could go for 
ever and ever on this movie. Like, we didn't even really get into the behind the scenes on the special effects. Right. I mentioned a couple things during the plot, but there's so many cool things. We can also talk about how this this production was a fucking nightmare in terms of, like, budgeting, rebudgeting, rebudgeting. It was originally... They originally set aside $200,000 out of $10 million for the special effects on this movie. Well, I think it's really hard it's so when you... I think it's really, it's really difficult when you go through so many different writers and directors and then Absolutely. it's finally assigned to someone. And it just ends... I, I don't know. I think at that point when it's been through so many people, it just... It begins to snowball and yeah. it just... Everything gets a little bit convoluted. Like, there's a big difference between someone just being the writer and director from the beginning and knowing yes. exactly what they're getting into and everything. Obviously, a studio um, can sway that in some way or make that convoluted. Yeah. But you know what I mean? This one went through so many different people yeah. that I would imagine that once John Carpenter got his hands on it, it's just like it snowballs. Yeah. Well, it's also funny. Um, one thing I forgot to mention in the uh, emblematic Carpenter things that happened on this film. Uh-huh. He will basically every production he's ever on he either actually quits or nearly quits and definitely threatens to quit multiple times yeah um at which he did several times in several iterations on this movie i think he did all three he threatened to quit multiple times nearly quit multiple times and actually quit at least once <laughs> jesus people I mean, fuck with him and he's like just stop fucking with me and let me make the goddamn thing like he gets annoyed with production but he hates producers well, that's why that's why he, he works with the people he works with. Yeah, and I, I, I totally could get how he would probably be under a certain amount of stress going from being an indie director to all and of a, a rising sudden, star. Yeah, yeah, and all of a sudden being in this position. I mean, it, the the pressure must be enormous. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. I mean, I, I, I totally, I totally get that, and I, I admire this movie so much for doing all of its practical effects. Um, I think it just makes it, like I said, 10 times cooler. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you know us. Horror babes love practical effects and usually hate CGI. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, no, I think it's it's amazing. They ended up using like a couple It's like I think it was one and a half million total for the special effects budget. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So um, Carpenter, I wouldn't say they're tantrums, you know, um, he he just lets people know where he stands. He's yeah. like, if you want the if you want to make a piece of shit. Cool. I'm just not putting my fucking name on it. Yeah. Where he said, like, um, when he's quit films before that he's like, and then come back to them, obviously. But like, it's been like, nope, fuck it. Take everything out. I don't want any credit. I don't want any money. Leave me the fuck alone. Yeah. So I love him for that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he takes a strong stance against uh, production teams. And I think that's a really good thing to do. Yeah. Studios need to learn to leave directors alone and writers alone and just let them make their goddamn movies sometimes. And I'm looking at you, certain multinational conglomerate that owns goddamn everything. Ooh. But also, Ooh. I will take a check if you want to hire me. I would direct a bomb episode of The Mandalorian. So cute. I might put a bleep sound over that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say what show, because then nobody will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Can um, I play Yodito? You could, of course, play Yodito. So cute. Um, yeah, so I, I, it's, I, I'm so excited for the rest of this month. I absolutely love talking about Carpenter and we are going to talk about one of his movies. That's maybe not his best, um, and not, maybe not even very good, but I find a lot of fun. Great. I'm, I'm so looking forward to this month. It's so fun. (laughs) Celebrating you and celebrating, um, one of our, both of our, one of both of our favorite directors. Yeah. I I really um, do like him too. Not just of horror. I think he just is, uh, like. 
he chooses to do horror all the time. He's also done not horror, but yeah. Well, and I uh, the thing that I love about him is that it's so clear when it's one of his movies. Yeah, it just it's it's almost like I'm, I'm we're gonna get it more and more and more into him as a director. Of course, and what of it course. means to see one of his films, like we did with Bong Joon Ho. Yeah. Um, but it's so cool to me that like it's almost this like unspoken unaware thing where you're just watching it and you're like nope that's carpenter mm-hmm. or you can see like someone someone shooting something like like when we talk uh when we talk about jordan peele we'll talk about his love of carpenter mm-hmm. um because it's so clear yeah just watching him being like no that's carpenter absolutely like you can see his influence everywhere mm-hmm. i think that's great it's really cool. So I think that about wraps us up for for this one anyway. Uh, please tune yeah, in for the rest. Yeah, I've got to cut myself off. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a whole we have a whole month where you can pepper in some other things that you want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, but it's, for it's sure. last call for me. <laughs> I need to cash out for this episode. <laughs> exactly. Three forty five a.m. I need to get the fuck home. Oh Jesus. <laughs> oh, those were the days, right, where we could do that. Yeah. Sorry, it's <laughs> nine thirty at night, and I have to cut my cut off all my customers yeah that's that's the reality of today but uh yeah please join us for the rest of the month it's gonna be a fun one especially if you are a john carpenter fan and if you're not i think you'll learn a lot i think you'll become one you might become one yeah uh so trust us yeah Y'all know where to find us. We're on Instagram at Horror Babes Podcast. We're on Twitter at Horror Babes Pod. And we're at HorrorBabesPod.com. We've been loving all the recommendations that you guys have been sending in. Please send in some more. We will always eventually get to them. We have a big list that we have to get to. And we're so excited about them. And uh, yeah, if you're enjoying us, please go give us a review on iTunes. That would be amazing. That's how we get to keep doing what we're doing. And anywhere else you can, you know? Yeah. Any Put us up on your Instagram, your Twitter. I don't give a shit. Word, like, of, word of mouth is, is very powerful <laughs> as well. So Not begging, but I'm not above it. Hey. Um, so yeah, stay safe out there. Wear a mask, wash your damn hands, and social distance. And until next time. That actually would have saved a lot of people in this movie. Oh, shit. Yeah. A lot of people in a lot of movies, let's be real. Yeah, but social distancing social distancing definitely would have saved a lot of people in this movie. And Google and a smartphone and okay. oh, fuck Google. She's <laughs> <laughs> getting in all the hits right at the end. There we go. Horror babes bingo. Sting. <laughs> all right. Until next time, stay safe. Bye, Bye babes. babes.